Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. But if I had one little piece of advice about something not to do, is if you have a habit of swearing in the booth when you flub or become frustrated, <laughs> I think that's a habit that maybe you want to make a different choice. That's Danielle Quisenberry, an award-winning interdisciplinary performing artist, choreographer, director, producer, teacher, and voiceover artist. Her client list includes Fiat, McDonald's, Mrs. Meyer's Clean Day, and Verizon. Recently, she has focused on directing authors and filmmakers who voice their own stories. She directed the voiceover narration for the documentary feature Afterward, executive produced by Abigail Disney, and was the audiobook recordist on Julian Tepper's latest book, Between the Records. Recognized with numerous honors from the L.A. Cinema Festival of Hollywood to the New York Innovative Theater Awards, she maintains a studio in Manhattan. Welcome, Danny. Grateful that you are taking advantage of a production studio to talk to me. It's fabulous. I'm over here with my friends at Buttons New York. They have been around for a long time. Some pretty cool folks have been in this very room that I'm in now. And I'm here today with my amazing engineer, Neil Lapola. He's helping me well, out. Well, this is the first professionally recorded podcast I've done with Artscoping. So thank you. Couldn't be more appropriate given who you are. And to get this out of the way, you've been my voiceover coach for over two years, and I'm completely indebted to you. It has been a pleasure. I always love our conversations. And, you know, just to full disclosure for everybody out there, you've worked on several top drawer audiobook <laughs> projects of late, and you're making me look pretty good. So thank you very much for the Not shout out. Not at all. No, I think for the art world, they are complete newbies for the most part to the world of voiceovers. And so today will be fun for them to pry into this mysterious world that happens in the whispered quietness of a booth. <laughs> it is mysterious and engaging. Yeah. And of course, the booth is a place typically of safety and comfort and removed from the chaos of the world. But these days, it's also a place where voice actors are a little worried to enter given the virus, no? Well, you know, over here at Buttons, they're using SAG protocols. And I've been here with projects several times in the last month, and I've felt good. We're working in smaller groups, you know, with social distancing. So the few people I've had a chance to direct over here have also expressed that they felt comfortable, but not very many production houses are open is my understanding. Yeah. Well, understandably, and I think a lot of us are working from home, which is in Manhattan, certainly, meaning that you're inside a closet surrounded by soft things and <laughs> doing That's your right. level best to suppress the barking dog outside somewhere. That's right. When we first started needing home studios about 10, 12 years ago, it became a real necessity to be able to audition from home. I ask some of my engineer buddies, always make friends with the engineer buddies. I ask them, hey, I want to do my first closet booth. How do I soundproof it? And they laughed for about 20 minutes. They said, you live in Manhattan, right? <laughs> I, said, I said, yes. They said, well, you can create sound absorption. It's going to be hard to get true proofing. So all of us that work from home in Manhattan, we all have those stories of the film crew camping outside, the barking dog, the neighbor who's learning to play the accordion, right? Yes. We do the best we can. It's beginning to be a necessity to have a broadcast quality home booth. I'm building a new one right now because of the way we're now working after COVID. Yeah, it's true. Although recording in the suburbs means leaf blowers. Everybody everybody <laughs> has their challenging sure. tales. Speaking of people who are right. getting into this world in new ways, you are in an extraordinary role right now because there's a growing cohort 
of well-known actors who are seeking entree into the voiceover world as the pandemic rolls on with a lot of in-person productions halted. What do you do to retrain a stage actor or a screen actor to voiceovers? It's very exciting when any actor sits in front of me. Actors want to act, so I understand why they are gravitating to voiceover at this time. It's a way to continue working on their craft. So it's always thrilling to have an actor in front of you to collaborate with. There are a few techniques that are endemic to the voiceover work that do not automatically come with your regular acting chops. Whether you're conservatory trained as an actor or whether you've gained all the skills you need on the job working in film or TV, there are still a few little things that are different that we have to adjust the dials on the craft. A simple example would be in most VO forms, we don't use volume as much as a tool for expression because of the needs of technology. We might create builds in the action with other vocal variables or perhaps energetic tools like subtext and images. And some of these things will already be familiar to the actor, but that is only one of the many differences when we begin to work on the mic. Most of the stage and film actors I've worked with who are very experienced but new to VO say it's harder than they expected <laughs> And that when they begin to study the VO craft and technique, that they find that it enhances their craft in general, which is really exciting. It's kind of like cross-training. And what would you say is the biggest flub you've experienced in training a famous actor that you're not going to name? <laughs> well, I've trained mostly workaday actors, but very experienced actors, folks that work on very high-level projects. There are three things I can think of that even experienced folks will do that we all work on. And one of them is when sessions are really long, hours at a time, we may begin to lose focus. And by that, I mean, we're not aware that we've begun to simply read rather than embody or imagine. And the vocal director can really help with that. The vocal director needs to stay that focused as well. And the vocal director can call a break, first off, or you can just say, hey, I just want to take that again. Let's just go back without giving any mm -hmm. direction just to hitting the reset button for the actor so that they can renew what they already know how to do. Even experienced narrators will sometimes begin to read. And what's so interesting about that is that the better you are, the better you need to be. So if someone is masterful at acting and they check out for a minute, we will really hear that on the mic. We'll go, hey, where's the master? Where did my narrator go? That's one of the big challenges for experienced people. I hardly ever offer advice. I like to find out what the other person needs and how to collaborate and then see which tools are best for their goals and needs. But if I had one little piece of advice about something not to do is if you have a habit of swearing in the booth when you flub or become frustrated, I think that's a habit that maybe you want to make a different choice. I know that the impulse is usually that, oh, I'm frustrated with myself. I know I'm holding things up. I don't want to hold up the team. I want to let you know I know it's not okay. But it will go faster if we don't swear. <laughs> the energy in the room will be more positive. And audio is indestructible. So folks that like to swear when they make a mistake, it's usually there to be pulled out underneath the edit 
I think showing our best selves in the booth is the way we want folks who get the work down the line and the production chain to perceive us. So if I only had one little <laughs> bit of advice, uh, it would be maybe don't swear. I will swear. try to refrain today, and I appreciate the direction, yeah, as, you, as I do with all the right. direction you give me. <laughs> so then those are the way actors sometimes walk into this with novelty. What about the general public? You represent yourself in the world, you tell people what you do. What are the most common misperceptions that most people have about voice acting? That it's easy, <laughs> that yeah, that you need an awesome voice, you know, that your voice has to sound beautiful. Most voices are marketable these days. We talked about the crossover skills that trained actors bring to the work. Everyone has a deep background. So when we're working with new folks who come and maybe they don't have an acting background or they don't have a broadcast journalism degree, we're always looking to mine their lived experience because the voice is a very personal and physical, psychological process. And we want to find out what they have that is a need to speak. I think a lot of people think that if they've been told they have a nice instrument, that that instrument doesn't require training. And it does. It's mm -hmm. not easy. That's what I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> and so... <laughs> knowing that, easy. knowing that there are a lot of habits that have to be unlearned and ways of hearing yourself and recognizing that you're living between the writer and the audience, you're in this never, never land. It's a peculiar place to be in the challenges that you have working with an author or a filmmaker who wants or needs to voice a personal story, but who is not themselves a professional narrator. Yes, Here's the thing I think about that. I love working with authors and filmmakers, and it matters not to me if they have traditional crossover skills, the need to voice your own story in your own voice. That is a thing that the production team should pay attention to, I think. We have to say most people are, are not so keen on being vulnerable in public and revealing the truth of their personal story. And if someone is saying, I really need to do it myself, that is a huge, courageous act, and we should get them support for that, I believe. When I worked on the film afterward with Ofra Block, it was Jack Riccobono who had that insight. He's a wonderful producer and filmmaker, and Miss Block is a psychoanalyst who became interested in transgenerational trauma and wanted to examine her own biases, things that she was taught, and her journey took her to Israel and Palestine and Germany to go on a quest of personal evolution by listening to people that she might not be otherwise inclined to hear. And on camera, because she was a psychoanalyst, she is just riveting, just compelling. Mm -hmm. So documentaries often have voiceover narration to fill in the few things that we can't get from the amazing images. And when she was going into the voiceover booth as an untrained narrator, here was this personal story from her own lived experience, and it was hard to connect to the words on a page, even though she had helped to write them. Jack called me up and he said, I have an interesting project for you. I hope you're available. And it turned out to be one of the most satisfying things I have ever done. Miss Block and I really hit it off. We had the time. We had a few weeks. We had the luxury of being able to work with her voice to improve it, mm -hmm. right, to work on her breathing and to give her those little tricks and tools of the professional voice talent 
that make it seem a little bit more polished. But we also treated her text as if it were a creative work and not her own lived experience in order to give her the distance to express the truth of it. We treated her a bit like she was her own character, Mm -hmm. and she was able to convey to me what she really wanted to say. So I was able to give her the technical tools to do that, and we had several sessions to work on that. And then I had the great privilege of being in the control room on the day to collaborate on her using subtext to tell that story. I did not get to hear the result of the directed session, the one that I was collaborating on as a director, until we were in the theater. Mm -hmm. We were in the theater, in the movie house, surrounded by people taking in the truth of her story. And I didn't notice. My job was to make her on-camera voice match her voice over her voice, to make it seamless. That was what she and I were trying to do together. And when I heard the first time it go from her speaking on camera to her speaking in our minds, I didn't notice at first. It took me about three seconds, and I, I went, oh, my gosh. She and I did it. Mm-hmm. We did it. It was very, very exciting. I've had many rewarding experiences in my career, but this particular one made me want to do more of it. I've done two author books. I worked with Julian Tepper, who has a lot of crossover skills. He's a great musician, and he, when I worked with him, he was narrating his third audiobook that he had written, so he brought a lot to the party. Ofra and I had time to establish a trust bond for the author work, and Julian and I were able to establish that trust bond even though we only met on the first day. So whether you're meeting on the first day or whether you have a process to develop the trust bond, one of the most important things about the director, facilitator, and the author, writer, or filmmaker in working together is that we do not skip the trust bond. You talked earlier about creating a safe place inside the booth, a safe, cozy place for us to express When I was early in my career in arts and education, I was able to work with a psychiatrist named Dr. John Woodall, and some of your audience may know him because he's done a lot of work on some of the bigger traumas in our society, like 9-11. He mentored artist educators, and I, I got to work with him a bit. One of the things that changed the way I live and changed the way I work is that he said you must, when you have a group of people or an individual person and you need to work on something personal with a high-level goal, you cannot skip the trust bond. And he called it creating the bowl. And it's making a safe place where all the players can see each other and feel valued. And I found that when I try to practice this, it's not always easy, that you do get faster at it. And when you're practicing it, you're more likely to receive it back from the person that you're working with. So he really changed my person, and which, of course, then always changes Mm -hmm. your artistry. And I think that's why I was able to connect with Ofra and also Julian, who were being so brave and were so creative in the way they wanted to express their truth through their art forms. Can you describe some other influences from growing up or your youth that brought you to your present moment? Sure. I I describe myself as an interdisciplinary artist. Usually when you say that, you say, I'm an interdisciplinary artist. People will say, what is that? (laughs) Right. And that's a valid question, because for me, it means that rather than just I do a lot of things, which I do, 
what I'm interested in is I look for the connections among them and the critical question that I'm working on or the parameters of the project itself where that meets the critical question will tell me what my role is and what art form is the best one to express. I think I learned this in arts and education as well because you would have so much money and you would have a school and you would have so many children and you would have a novel and they would say you need to teach math and history through this novel. You need to do it with dance and playwriting. You need to do it on a roof with a string and five cents. And you would figure out how to solve that creative problem in a life-giving way. And I don't know if I was inclined toward that when I began to work in arts and education or if I learned it truly just learned it there. But I approach the rest of my professional work that way as well. I've dance directed in TV and film, and I've vocal directed for film audiobooks and student demo records. And it's more related than one might think because the voice is a physical process and dance is a language of its own. And I think that storytellers will use any lens they enjoy if they have a yummy, critical question to chew mm-hmm. on, you know. And uh, I so admire that at the top of your podcast, it says, you know, what gets me out of bed in the morning? We're going to talk to people and ask them what makes them happy, what drives them. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's a creative problem to chew on and to try to figure out which art mm-hmm. form I'm going to use. But Danny, some of those art uh, forms are a little bit in question given the pandemic and the after effect of it. So much is being said about the performing arts facing a rough road ahead with seated performances sure. being held in question. So how is that affecting the way you're working today, the amount of work you're getting in different disciplines, and what you think it might presage in the profession writ large? Yeah, that's a great question. My dancer friends are not working in the same way at all. You know, we had a studio space in Manhattan that was a collaborative that was primarily for dance, and that won't be there when COVID is over. A wonderful tango dancer, Dardo Galetta, was running that space and providing it for so many artists. We'll all need to be looking for a new home. Having said that, I'm going to teach a choreography in the park mm. on, uh, on Saturday, and it will be the first one that I'm doing. It will be contactless, which is a loss for all dancers. I specialize in partner dancing, so part of what we do is share body weight and energetic life through touch, and that part is missing. So we're extending the energy, extending the love, if you will, across a great space, and that provides a learning experience, but it also, at the same time, you're like, I miss. I mean, even today, I've worked with Neil here at Buttons a few times, and the first time I came in, I've also worked with Rich McCarr. He's amazing. This is his place. And I was back directing on, you know, the God mic, the big mic that everybody can hear in the back of the room, you know, and they turn you on and off. But I prefer to direct sitting with my engineer. I don't know if all of my engineers prefer that. But, you know, it's so easy to go look at that beautiful waveform, that representation of the voice print, and you go, it's right there. It's, I'd like to go back to this spot. It's like reading music, you know. And I told Kevin Shorman, I teach a lot over at Edge Studio. I owe a great debt to David Goldberg for hiring me when I was a young voice talent. Kevin Shorman's my engineer over there. And I'm like, man, I love working with you online. I do. I would work with you anywhere. I said, but I do miss you bringing me candy at the top of the session. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he would bring me candy. We'd get our water. We would sit down. We would shoot the breeze. And then... 
we would get to work and we would share that waveform. And, you know, right now you don't have those simple little human things like listen through my headphones, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of things. You mentioned candies. Certainly a voice actor needs to be thinking about their voice as an instrument, like Yo-Yo Ma thinks about his cello. You have to take care of it. So what are the ways you go about That's taking right. care of your instrument? This might be the important thing if people are listening and and do this work or want to use their voice to do this kind of work. One of the most important things I think I'm going to say today is straw singing. There's a whole series of vocal exercises and an emerging new field called vocology that our speech pathologist or, or vocal scientist might be more apt, who specialize in working with the voice, not just speech, but the voice. It is fascinating stuff, and being able to blow bubbles through a straw is one of the greatest gifts you could give to a long-form performer working with their voice. So when folks get off the call, if they're curious, you should Google vocology or straw singing and then get to it. I did it this morning. Neil was like, what's (laughs) up with that? It's the best thing. It uh, relaxes all the muscles responsible for vocal production, and it does it pretty quick. And if you get in the habit of it, it's great. And, of course, you know, rest and not being stressed, you know, meditation, lots of water. If you can find it in your heart during these stressful times to limit your coffee and your alcohol, that helps a lot as well. I think the divergent factors that everybody's facing these days all of the uncertainties around what projects will be greenlit and which will not. Mm-hmm. With documentary film and theater, which you also work in, what's happening on those fronts? When, when we do doc theater, the process of creating it is often done without, you know, with, with not so many people. The doc theater projects that I cut my teeth on were at the Metropolitan Playhouse. Alex Rowe gave me the opportunity to work on a project called Alphabet City, And how that project works is you find a single person with an interesting story from the area of East Village, New York, and you go and you interview them, which is still possible online or or in person. And then you craft a solo show from their verbatim text, so you become a playwright, and then you embody them as an actor. And the last piece is you deliver it to a live audience, which we're really not able to do yet But I saw a wonderful piece that Alex himself did online not too long ago that he filmed, and it creates a little bit of a hybrid form. I also saw a wonderful play that folks at the Rattlestick Theater presented. I wasn't involved in it. My good friend Suzanne Darrell was involved. She's a wonderful actress. She studied movement with me. I work in a partnership between Actor Studio Drama School and Alvin Ailey School. They've been working together for a long time, so I get to work with a lot of the MFA candidates at the Actor Studio Drama School. I'm not teaching college right now. Some folks are. Suzanne was in that project, and she said, hey, I'd really like you to see it. It's a great play. And not only was it a good play and it was well-directed and the actors were amazing, there was an interactive component through the chat where we were providing audience response as we would as if we were live, and it was creating this hybrid form, and I was sitting in my basement by myself having a group experience. Mm -hmm. I felt I was. You know, I couldn't hear the people next to me breathing, which I missed, laughing, which I missed. But the performers expressed afterwards, you know, had the good fortune of knowing Suzanne, that they couldn't attend to it while it was happening. Like you would immediately hear someone laugh or clap. 
but that afterwards that it was very informative to the work. You're like, they liked this. They connected to that. They told a little story about themselves, <laughs> you know. So it gave real insight into the audience process. And I found that. I was like, wow, I think we're going to create some new styles of work out of something that on its face just seems only challenging. Yeah. With those challenges, what are you working on right now? Oh, gosh. Well, building that broadcast quality booth has been absorbing. I have the one author book that is completed but needs to be promoted, and I'll be promoting that in November. It's another book about music from a dear friend, and I'm excited to talk about it. I just can't talk about it quite yet. And someone contacted me the other day about an inspirational author book, which I'm consulting on at the minute. And one of my Actors Studio students contacted me. He is developing a unique program for Chinese actors and American actors to split their time between New York City and Beijing. And it's in the very early stages of the process. And, of course, COVID has put some of the in-person things he had in mind on hold. But I am hoping to be involved in that as faculty in the future when that gets going. It's a global exchange designed to share tools and techniques about how we make work. What's the best way for listeners to find you online? DanielleQuisenberry.com is probably the best way. It's kind of the hub for the interdisciplinary work. My business name is Studio Cued, Interdisciplinary Arts. Well, Danny, I'm so grateful for everything, for getting me started in the world of audiobooks, for the ways that you have helped me and so many others find their path into voice work and to make time for today's conversation. Oh, well, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> Just to be able to talk about what you love to do when someone gives you that, that's a great gift. And I, I always love my conversations with you, whether we're working on something or... Uh, just having a coffee. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. We'll, I'll see you again soon, and we'll all follow you online. Thanks again for today. Till soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. My guest today was Danielle Quisenberry, an award-winning interdisciplinary performing artist, choreographer, director, producer, teacher, and voiceover artist. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.